there are a lot of great voices out there and a lot of stories that have been untold. And honestly, um, when you think about what people actually listen to, they need something real, mm -hmm. right? They, they need um, real and relevant. You know, I told, I told people when I started working with the National Center for the Development of Boys, um, we, you know, we created that. And we created that from a conversation that I had with parents. I actually did a talk and it was like standing room only. And then I was like, I thought about 10 people would show up, but <laughs> they were all saying, okay, they're leaning in going, all right, what do we need to know to protect our young men? And more importantly, say it in a way that I understand it. You know, I grew up in a church and the churches that were packed had somebody up in the pulpit who can make it sound like they're from that same neighborhood and it feels the same way. They ate the same food, but they happen to be at the corner of research and reality. Right. Ooh. And whatever word is in the Bible, according to that, or if it's something that's science, you know, for me, I look at different kinds of research and data and, you know, every data set is only as good as the, you know, the sample size. So um, research works, right. You can extrapolate, but at the same time, it doesn't work for every single person. And I try to iterate that as well. But bottom line is if you see failure after failure, after failure, or dysfunction after dysfunction, um, you got to change the system man. you can't just depend on individuals. So I appreciate y'all doing this because this is about um, creating systems that that change systems. So I think it'd be helpful. Tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, I think too often, um, and again, I'm gonna make a little bit of presumption here, but I think too often young people look at folks like you and think that you fell on top of the mountain. They don't understand the backstory, grind, what it was like, you know, right. on, the, on the come up. Uh, they see you now and, you know, dressed to the nines, articulate, you know, college educated. If you would take us back, what made TK, you know, Troy Kim, Troy Kim? What was it? Just give us a little bit of insight into what kind of molded you into the man you are today. Well, I appreciate you asking that question because um, you're exactly right. People look at the, 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 the polished human individual and they don't understand that the, the fire that made the steel. Right. I told people the hottest fire makes the strongest steel. And honestly, my life, you know, I, I often kind of go back, you know, I'm going to write a book one day. Uh, but the reason why I'm doing it is because people need to understand the journey. It's always been the process. People see the outcome, but it's always been the process because the process reminds you to keep your head on the swivel, because even if you get close to the top of the mountain. Right. You know, I don't care how close I get to the top of whatever mountain, figurative mountain that someone talks about. I'm still have my head on the swivel like the score is zero zero. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, they used to say when we were very young, sometimes they would say, boy, you ain't no count. And my brother said this the other day. He said, no count. That means we less than zero. What's that? So <laughs> I'm going to kick it back to day one to kind of to square it off a little bit. Um, I grew up in a migrant working family. And for those people who don't know what that means is, um, you know, my grandfather, grandmother, they were kind of seasonal um, workers. So you would go where like tomato season, you would go where the tomato crops were growing and, and basically you harvest them by hand in, in, in buckets, 25 cents a bucket. And you, you know, however many you pick for the day, that's how much money you made for the day. And then there were people called um, contractors. Um, there's a farmer, then there was a contractor and the farm labor contractor was the person who hired that crew. It might've been 50 people, might've been 20 people, but all those people who would go out there and pick, and then they have sort of a hierarchy of people who kind of walk the field to make sure people are doing things right. Some people gave out the tickets when you pick the basket. Some people dumped them in the truck for you. So there's multiple roles. But at the end of the day, that was that was what my family knew. So that's how we ended up in New York, even though my family's kind of from Florida. 
we would travel seasonally. It was potato season in New York. And a lot of people don't realize on Long Island is white potatoes out on East End. Well, maybe not now, but there were all these potato farms and you'd have to harvest them and bag them up and stuff like that. So, you know, when I was younger, my mom was in college when I was born. I didn't know who my dad was, single parent. You know, I was one of them babies. You know, she's working in the summer and, you know, it went to like went down like it did. And here comes a child. My mom's in college. And so I was ended up having to be raised by my aunt because my mom had to try to finish school. Um, she went to school at actually to college. She graduated high school at 16. I didn't even know that until like like two years ago. Yeah. But anyway, she went to college, uh, Edward Waters College down in near Bethune, Cookman and all that. And, you know, I was kind of raised by committee. So her older sister took me on. She had a son that was a year older than me. And she was my mom. She literally was my mom all the way through high school. So I grew up on Long Island with my aunt instead of my biological mom. But every summer we go down on the season, we pack up the car. You know, we were, it was five of us, five boys and one girl in, in my aunt's family. I was the fifth boy, obviously, but she treated me like her own. We go down there and work in the fields. My, my aunt would be the cook for that crew. My uncle would be the farm labor contractor who hired everybody and paid everybody. And then we would be out in that field because that was the babysitter, right? I mean, you either with your mom, she taking care of you, or you're out there in that field trying to catch a roll. We used to call it catch a roll. That means get that roll, you and your brother, and just keep picking until we tell you it's time to, to quit. And that's when I learned what infinity was, first of all, because it was like, <laughs> this the second thing that I learned was you just work until the job is done because we didn't have start at eight, finish at five. It was a sun up to sun down kind of thing, or whenever the field was finished. So we, we didn't look at our watches. We didn't have any on anyway. So you learn in life right there. You got to grind, keep on grinding. And their favorite phrase was, phrase was don't, don't lighten up, tighten up. That was it. <laughs> what, what are we talking? We kids. I'm like, are we allowed to be kids? Because in the summer, we had to be like many adults, right? And so my life, my aunt, her husband died when I was like four years old. So we grew up in a single family, a single parent household, some different dads in the picture along because, you know, I don't judge people. Sometimes, you know, women have men in their lives because they need company, but at the same time, they're with them in a relationship and all of a sudden here comes a baby. And then that, then there's a link between that man and that family, financial support, all this kind of stuff that happens. So we, we did okay in some ways, but we were on the government assistance, you know, government cheese, free lunch, food stamps. We had the medical card. You know, my mom sent me in the store with uh, food stamps. Uh, Devin, I, one thing you didn't know, when I was at Colgate, man, I had some food stamps. And let me tell you something. When I went to college, I had food stamps. My mom sent me some. And I was like, man, I can't spend these around all these rich people. What? <laughs> and so I remember I had a basket full of stuff. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I got to give you this story because it just reminded me. I had a basket full of stuff, and I had some grits in my basket. And I'm from, you know, New York, but... I'm from the South, so I got my grits. I'm up there at Colgate with all these preppy kids and all this stuff. And I had my grits in my basket and some food stamps. And I'll never forget some people I knew walked in the store, man, I pushed that basket over to the side and sprinted out of that store. I was like, two things. One, you ain't never gonna catch me spending no food stamps. Cause they didn't have that little swipe card. It was paper stamps. Second thing, I was not letting these people up North see me eating grits. Cause I was like, ah, they gonna say I'm some old country boy from down here. So I was fighting that stereotype right there. So again, food stamps, free lunch growing up. Um, we we had people that would um, would take us out of class sometimes to read to us and stuff like that. Because they knew at home we were not getting um, the kind of attention 
that most kids would get because we had a single parent. She's trying to grind, find a way to rake and scrape to put us back on the map. She tried to dress us, honestly, almost better than a lot of the kids whose parents had two jobs because she did not want them to know and want us to feel like we had we were less than them. So one thing she always did, and that's why when I see people dressing with all this stuff, is a compensation because you know you may feel a certain way on the inside. That may mean you may have to project on the outside to look better than you are in some ways, right? So when I see people, oh, you shouldn't be spending money on all that stuff. Sometimes they're just trying to mask stuff on top of, you know what I mean? So growing up the hard way, growing up out in the field, you know, grew up grading potatoes, picked peaches, peppers, onions. I mean, people don't realize when I see produce in the store, I see something different. Right. <laughs> you know, they're looking at right. it. I'm like, I'll put them in the bag, baby. I got bitten by the horse flies. I mean, honestly, we, we, we had to stay in facilities sometimes that didn't have um, working toilets. We had to use the night pot, bro. We had a pot that looked like a pot like you cook on a stove, but it was designated. It was a night pot. It was white, so you couldn't use it no other way. That was your bathroom, man. Put some yeah. water in there, and that's your bathroom for the night because there was no running water or no, um, not running water, but no toilets and stuff that worked in some of these camps that used to house these folks. I mean, people would not believe the conditions but we would do that in the summer and our conditions were a little better than everybody else's, but the mosquitoes, the horse flies, the, I mean, my brother right now, if he was on this call, you'd be like, man, y'all were traumatized as kids. And I talked to my mom and she go, boy, it wasn't that bad. And I said, well, y'all had it worse. So again, it's all relative because their mom, the stuff that stories they would tell me, I was like, man, we would like work. But remember this, we were living in a world where we were growing up on Long Island where none of the kids had to do stuff like that. And then we had to go back and be almost like, you know, J Jim Crow level, mm. you know, in some of the places in the South. And so we had to rock between two different worlds. But what it did is it, it allowed me to speak multiple languages. You know, I tell people I can speak penthouse and outhouse for real. <laughs> and I think that's important because there's people who are struggling on both ends and, and, and on the, of the spectrum and in between. So again, growing up, free lunch, food stamps, you know, single parent household. But here's what I can tell you. I made my bed every day. I was the kid, you know, we got beatings. We got hit with stuff sometimes, man, that I can't even qualify, quantify it. I ain't never going to tell that story. But, but I can tell you that was a normal thing in my family and in some of the other families that I grew up with. But my brother pushed back. And when he pushed back, he quit school and he left home and then he ended up getting locked up as a teenager. And I saw this happen because he didn't make his bed every day. So I was the kid getting praised. People had a vision for me. People always said, you're going to be something. I always had good grades. I always had great test scores. He had the same thing, but he had that maverick attitude. I was a compliant one. And he's like, man, this ain't slavery, man. You ain't going to, we ain't going to live like this. She tell us to clean this room. It's going to get dirty anyway. So, well, why we clean it up? Let's just put it in the closet. He used to call it plan C, put it in the closet. And I said, man, she's going to go in that closet and we're going to get plan W, get that whooping, right? <laughs> so again, he had an entrepreneurial maverick kind of spirit. I was more of a compliant one. I made my bed every day. I was the worried well. So when I tell people, especially when you deal with boys, some people are wired to color inside the lines. And then the other group is funky and junky. The funky and junky group is bigger. That's facts. So what are you going to do with them? Because there's plenty of them. Well, that's what we build in prisons for. Right. That's the ones that spending all the times at the principal's office who may be brilliant in a lot of ways, but they're misunderstood. So they're mismanaged. And when they're mismanaged, they misbehave. Right. Yeah. So how did I make it through? Well, one, people had 
hope for me. Teachers said positive things about me. My art teacher made me artist of the month in second grade. My music teacher said, you sing like a champion. Let's be all state in chorus. I was like, all state don't work in my neighborhood. I'm at the fight every day if I go out here singing. And he's like, you got a beautiful voice and that might be the best way for you to go to college. So you better sing right now while you can. And I said, well, you know what, man? I decided at that point, I don't care. It's being smart, being smart is the way out. It ain't cool, but it's the way out. Re your reading is the way out. It ain't cool, but reading is the way out. But I was also blessed to be decent as an athlete. I was small for a long time. I was 4'11 in the eighth grade. But what happened is I grew as a, you know, in, in high school, I grew up to ended up being about 5'11, six feet. But point being, when you're small, you, you develop a lot of fight. You develop a lot of will and you, you got to overcome a lot of things. So I believe struggling as a child, being a smaller person who was pretty athletic, but small made me say, develop skills and attributes that I may not have had to do um, if I was Goliath. I was more like David. So having a fight, having a hustle family, you know, my family's like, again, for the, for the day we die, we're going to always hustle. I was selling concessions as a child on the camp. After work, take a shower. Now you the concession man. So I'm selling cigarettes. I'm selling sodas, beers, some wines, so whatever. You know, we were selling that stuff. We were, the, we were keeping the books. That's what the kids did, man. They were like, wait a minute, weren't y'all like 10 and 11 years old? Yeah, but in certain families, you got a responsibility. That's how you do. You take care of your brothers, you take care of your family, and that's what you do. And you don't, you don't worry about, you know, Christmas time gonna come and we turned up on Christmas. We turned up on our birthdays, but everything in between, you got to hustle. And I think to me, when people talk about how did I make it through, one, that hustle was there. And then the academics, God put some things in my life, you know, gave me a certain ability and also made me stay between the lines more. And then teachers had hope and vision for me. They weren't trying to save me. They were just hopeful for me. And they did things like when I was in high school, I didn't know I was going to be a college athlete. I was going to the army. I was going to GI Bill because I said, I got to pay for college. I didn't know anything about financial aid. I did not know college had financial aid. I thought it was scholarship or you paying. My guidance counselor said, Kemp, you're going to be able to go to any school in the country based on your scores and your, and, your, and your grades and the recommendations that people are going to write for you. Well, all of a sudden, when I grew, I was playing some pretty good football. All of a sudden, all the Ivy Leagues and schools like Colgate and all those other schools, Duke, Stanford, all those schools start coming through my high school. They weren't looking for me. They were looking for this big dude named Chris Kruger, who was 6'5", 250, and they were going looking for him. But when they watched his film, they saw me. It was like, this quarterback right here, he's playing linebacker too. This kid's an athlete. Let me see. We, we can do something with him. And my coach said, hey, this guy can, this guy right here, can his grades are great. He can get into your school. Fast forward. All of a sudden, these recruiters come through. My guidance counselor paid for my college application fees. My principal took me on a recruiting visit to Lafayette College. He drove me to, as my dad, basically. Wow. No kid, kids don't get that kind of love in school. So when people say, how did you make it? Yeah, there were certain things that I had innate, but the nurturing side, anything that my mom couldn't give me, my school gave me. And most people's schools don't complement or supplement what their parents give them. They actually probably go the opposite direction because they don't have hope for those kids because they're tired. So I gave the teachers some hope. So they gave it back to me. And all of a sudden I said, I'm going to Colgate because I want to do something 180 degrees different from what my life. 
And also they played pretty good football too. And they were Ivy league caliber school. So I said, I can get all these things in one. And if you ask me, how did I make it? The elevator, there's the stairs and the elevator in life. And the elevator is education because the elevator gave me access to people. They gave me access to a network, but more importantly, they gave me access to a mindset that was completely different from my neighborhood. Save your money. Don't buy the ball or car. Invest in your house, right? You might want to wait. Saving versus spending. So again, it changed, it changed my whole mindset. I just saw completely. It's like I went to Mars and I learned what it was like to be on Mars. I know that's a long answer to a short story, to short question, but so when people say, how did I get to where I am? I just kept playing the cards that I was dealt. But I think being able to connect with people because I grew up at the bottom of the hill made people trust me. And when people trust you, they give you access to things. And when they give you access to things, when you get in the door, you help create culture and you create new systems that elevate and you make things better when you get there. And when you make things better and you get there, people see you. And when people see you, other opportunities show up. And so for me, I just played the cards that I had because I only was dealt a couple in the beginning. So when I got a full hand, I was like, we're about to rock with this. And now I'm about to change the hand and deal some cards to some new people. Yeah, that's wow. incredible. And I, I chuckled when you, uh, when you uh, referenced the, the food stamps uh, and being in the store. Because even with a card, man, it'd be like, oh, man, I don't want to see us. I don't want them seeing a swipe. <laughs> You see what I mean, man? You don't know who behind you, who in front of you. The thing may not swipe right. And then they got to call somebody up front. Really? Not doing it, bro. I'd rather not eat than swipe, get a spin a food stamp in the store up at Colgate. I'm telling you. So it's interesting, right? So I didn't know. Our, our backstories are more similar than I thought. Like, when I went to Colgate, it was like I went to Mars. You know, kids were driving around with sobs and Talking about vacation and in Vail and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting how uh, your frame of reference changes when you're in new circumstances. And I wonder, you had some people investing in you before you actually start to believe in yourself. What, like, where does that come from, you think? I mean, those people saw potential in you before you even began to know what was possible. Why but don't see, you that, think? But, but see, Devin, that's that's why mentors are essential, <laughs> right? Because you know, I tell people all the time, you you expect these kids to cross this bridge of life, right? Whatever that means, right? But but here's what it here's what it's like, you know, you got to have somebody who's seen the course before, who played the course before, right? I, I was on a golf course, this is high level golf course called the Honors Course in Chattanooga, and I went out there and I was supposed to find my group. They said, your group is on group thir uh, on 13 because I gave him a talk that morning. You're on, they're on hole 13. And I said, hole 13, where is that? He said, well, you go through here, this, that, and the other thing. So I'm driving because I'm used to playing on public courses. I'm not a golfer like that. And I drive out there. And I, go, what the heck? I said, these holes don't have any numbers on them. And I was like, how am I going to find? So I'm the black dude driving on the golf course back and forth. And they're like, he don't belong out here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I'm all nervous. But then when I finally found a hole, I found the wrong one, but the guy said, oh, 13's up there. And I said, how was I supposed to know? They said, oh, you never played this course before. So we're going to show you. But that's what mentors, that's why people who've made it, that's why people who've gotten to a point where they can zoom out and get to the balcony and see life from the balcony, right? You see where the turns are, but you see kids and you see people who are right at those point, those inflection points. And that's where you swoop in. And that's where they have to have confidence and trust in you so that you can help get them across and know which stones to step on across the river, right? 
See, see that to me, when, when you say, where does that come from? I think what happens with, I know what happened at my household, even though I was the cousin, if you ask everybody in the house, who was her favorite child, they, she would probably say, they say, they all say me. They were like, why would you be the favorite? And you weren't even her blood. And basically because I was compliant, because I was the one that would do the work. I was the one that she said, Troy, clean the refrigerator out for me. So I'm going to pull everything out, wipe it down. I'm cleaning out the microwave underneath the thing. You know what I mean? I was the dude that would organize and that stuff. But I spoke her language because my family is about work and hustle and order and clean, all that stuff. And so because I did it automatically, they didn't have to yell at me as much. So they were like, that's my favorite right there. Well, in school, I think the same thing is true. Riverhead, we had a lot of people who dropped out, a lot of fights, a lot of just nonsense. And when you find a kid who comes from that same background, but that kid is getting to class on time, then you're like, okay, I'm going to go talk to this guy right here because we got hope if he's got hope. Because that means it can be done. And so I think what happened is, well, there were some people who were kind of assigned to me because my mama was a migrant worker and we were like, you're high risk. But the other people just said, I see something that you hadn't seen in a while. And it's like a tip, uh, 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 some hope, a ray of hope. So the school's like, let's do this. We're going to save somebody in this place. And so I think that's where, that's honestly what drives me and motivates me too, is that, man, if people really looked at the path point A to point now, I'm calling it point now, mm. dude, they were like, how the heck did you do it, bro? But you know what? Since I've been working on reaching and teaching boys, I understand that there's a lot of baggage and a lot of scars that I have that affected the way I have dysfunction. Everybody does. So some of the dysfunction I have um, is a direct result of some of the, 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 the trauma that I faced that was never mitigated in any way. And so I found my own solution set. And I think sometimes the things that I found um, were toxic in some ways to me and to other people. So I find it interesting, uh, Troy, uh, in what you said, you know, there were a lot of kids that were just dropping out uh, at that time. And uh, they they saw they see this glimmer of hope in you. And, and so they start to gravitate towards you. And one of the things that I found interesting just through some of this work that we've been doing is uh, the idea that sometimes it's just a matter of showing up. Right. Like you might not. Maybe, maybe you are still the kid that doesn't get there on time, but you still showed up and you were making this concerted effort to try and try and try. And that, that also uh, opens up doors uh, for you as well, too. Do you, do you think that uh, at the core of it all is like, man, this kid's showing up, let's show up for him as well, too. Uh, kind of a, a scenario that, that was going on as you were growing up and with the school teachers and those who kind of gathered around to help you. I think you hit the nail on the head because when I was an educator, so, you know, I never planned on being in education ever. Cause you know, you grew up the hard way. You want to make money. You're like, look, I'll do anything to get, be able to, to send my mother a check every week or every month to make sure she's all right. And my brothers and sisters, you know, make sure they're all right. So you like, look, I'll be whatever, but you also, when you, when you wanted a few that can, can make it to a certain point in life, you realize there's a responsibility. So you're like, well, maybe I haven't reached high enough. I got to keep grinding. But Going back to what, when you talk about showing up, you know, people, you know, I learned this later in life, but I kind of understood it earlier in life was that, you know, 50% of life is showing up and the other half is following up, right? And the showing up part 
you know, I built my my systems in terms of how to help students who who thought they were allergic to algebra end up being engineers. I built it on showing up. I built it on doing the work and putting in the effort because that's the only thing you can control your attitude and your effort at some point. Some kids are going to have more ability than others. So if you're measuring solely on that, then you're going to be giving a whole lot of D's out. But if you look at the process and you build it around the process, then the process is on time equals early, right? If you yeah. turn in something, turn it in on time. If it's not your best work, you're still turning it on time because writing is revision. That's what you learn later in life, right? And great educators understand this kid is doing the best that he can and he's delivering it according to my deadlines. If I set a parameters on something, this kid is trying. And what are the, I tell people to measure what you treasure. And so teachers, oftentimes they say this stuff matters, but it doesn't count on a grade book. It's only tests and quizzes. And by the way, I got rid of tests a long time ago. I call them opportunities. Lord, I just yes. said, we're going to have wow. opportunity. We're going to have an opportunity moment right now. Yes, sir. Because, I, I because like as it. a coach, the game has always been opportunity. And I don't care if you played the team that was undefeated, you showing up thinking you're going to win. Why? Because that's an opportunity to show what I know. Well, why wouldn't you say the same thing about a test or a quiz or a paper or whatever? So I just changed the name. I literally erased that. And my, my boys used to always say, hey, well, this opportunity number seven right here. And we used to have an acronym, TB Soto, to be successful on this opportunity, right? You need to, bam. And I used to help, they used to help me create, what, what is it that you need to know? And, and, and at the end of the day, my grade, when you looked at my grading system, opportunities were worth 65% of the grade. Their effort grade was about 12%. 12%. 12%. So you can't even get an A in my class if you're not rocking it in terms of effort. My homework was this way. If you do the homework, you know, basically, if you don't know how to answer the question, write a question about the question. If you can't write three sentences or five sentences on something that I ask you about, write five sentences on something else. Yeah. Give me something. If my map's not working for you and you don't understand it, then color another map and label it. Right? See, yeah. people don't understand. As a coach, that's how you would approach things. It's about effort. We're going to find out some people got talent, but if you do it over time, perfect practice makes perfect, you know, the talent code, right? You can grow, you can improve your talent, right? And that's the thing that you got to bake into the recipe. And people unfortunately focus way too much on those other things. So again, me showing up, let them know that I'm in it to win it. So they can own it in a different way. They can't blame it on me. Yeah. Now they got to yeah. own it and say, this brother here is showing up. So I got to do my part. Do you think that visualization, like being able to, so the, the idea that you now have these other people involved in your life that are seeing things that you aren't necessarily seeing and probably just because there was no time to normalize it in conversations, right? You guys were, you guys were hustling. You guys were trying to get things done uh, for, for the family. But do you think that the words and the, the way they went about assisting you and, and the things that they would tell you also helped in some form or fashion, you seeing yourself in your mind's eye, being in, in those, like, you, you know, in the colleges or somewhere further along than um, what you were accustomed to growing up. You, there, there's another thing, right? People always say you gotta see it to be it, right? And, mm -hmm. and I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, that's the reason why when I was up at Colgate, I, I drove home and I took my younger brother and I said, we're gonna bring you up to college up here so you can see this place. Cause there are a lot of kids that have never ever step foot on a college campus. And I think for black and brown kids, they need to step foot on a 
predominantly white college campus and they need to go to HBCU and not just the HBCU that's barely keeping the lights on. They need to get a variance of types of schools and not just an Ivy League predominantly white school, but a variant there as well. They got to get exposed to it so they can kind of see themselves there. Look, I spent a lot of my career, I spent 11, almost, I spent 10 years as a Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at the Macaulay School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. All boys school, boarding and day school, private school, all this stuff, something that I would never have imagined, right? But these kids were like, I'm doing just fine in my public school where I'm at. But until we can get their parents to bring them on campus to actually visualize and see themselves there and see other people that kind of are like them, they go, I, this is where I need to be, right? So for me, in my mind, they had to paint a picture for me. Now, you know, I was a, a math major, but I was very close to being an art minor. So my visualization, you know, I think in terms of pictures all the time. And you're exactly right. They had a vision for me. And I had to buy into that vision for myself in order to um, be motivated. Because at the end of the day, motivation is intrinsic. And it had to be something that I valued and something that I wanted. But if it's something that I've never seen, how can I value it? Right, right. Right. You know, it, it is very interesting. I don't and I don't know if you've uh, seen any of the articles or any of the numbers around this, but there was a study that was done where they took a group of individuals uh, practicing their free throw shot and they split them up into three groups. And they had uh, one group that just every day for about 15 to 30 minutes, they would practice their free throw shot. And then they had the second group actually just visualize practicing their free throw shot and making it every time. And then the third group did nothing. Uh, and the interesting um, result of the study was that the, those who practiced their shot physically uh, increased their gain by 24%. And those who just did it by visualization increased it by 23%. So a, a, a percent difference. Uh, and just by visualizing what they could do, you know, and, and it is just interesting as our minds just kind of builds out the pathways to get us into uh, being the people that we need to be as we excel into these areas going, you know, the penthouse talk to the outhouse talk, right? Right. right. <laughs> but you know what I got, there's two things that you make me think of when you do that. Well, first of all, what if somebody gave you a vision for yourself that was less than zero, like no count? Mm. Oh, that's right? good. So that's when you good. look at the opposite side of that, when someone has a vision for you, oh, you're going to get in trouble or you just like your brother or you just like your dad. Right. Yeah. Or all you care about is this. Well, you hear that enough. Then yep. it's sort of like I was listening to something today where they said, you know, when you buy a car, you buy that car. Next thing you know, you drive down the street. It seems like everybody has that car. Right. right. Yes. Because yes. So now your mind is locked in. I forgot the name of some kind of illusion, but you kind of see you're picking it out. So the same thing is true when you buy a concept, when you buy into a concept about yourself, then you start seeing that and you start ignoring the things that are counter to that, right? Yeah. If you buy yeah. you're great, if you buy that you're smart, if you buy that you're a hard worker, then you see all these, oh, I, this is something I did. You know, I make my bed every day. Man, one time I make my bed so much that one time mm -hmm. I made my, my hotel bed when I was checking out, <laughs> right? Because it's a habit now, because I also understood that you know, you have your motivation, you have your willpower, but you also have habits. So I said, anything that I am not motivated to do, let me see if I can build a habit, right? So I'm jumping on that. But but what I was saying is when you talked about the visualization, you know, I coached for 30 years and I coached lacrosse, which is a sport that I never grew up playing. I was a football, basketball guy, baseball, until my mom made me get a job, you know, for that third season. So I skipped the spring. But 
the point is when I would be in a game and our kids, when, when, when hell's breaking loose and there's straight chaos out there and the kids are not playing their best, I get them to close their eyes and I always ask them or tell them to remember that last time and imagine yourself getting the ground ball, making a shot, making an assist, helping your buddy, high-fiving somebody. I want you to see this thing. And I said, don't open your eyes so you're locked in and you see it. Because guess what? I wouldn't have brought you out here if I didn't know you can do this kind of thing. And you'd be amazed at one, it would calm them down because it gives them positive things that they're thinking about and reminding them and stuff that they can buy into collectively. And then we just go out there because you had to reset them. Yeah. And so the question is, who's out here helping reset these kids? Because mm. if somebody at the house is telling you that you just like your daddy and that you ain't no count and you ain't this, that, and the other, my teachers were constantly reset. Now, my mom didn't say that about me, but I heard it said about some other people. And I heard it said about me sometimes. I've been called stupid a few times by people who had me doing adult tasks and I didn't do them well and I was embarrassed that I couldn't do them. And I, that stuck with me to this day. I can remember two times being called stupid by a very person I really care about a lot. And it hurt me. And I've never told them that it bothered me by that. And so I would say in my lifetime, I'll never call somebody stupid. I was a child, but it wounded me. And my right. thing is, but I had people resetting and creating another vision for me every single day. Yeah, I love that because the brain is just like the operating system on a PC. Sometimes you need to reboot it. Right? You got upgraded. That's right. It's, That's exactly right. Yeah, you know what I mean? And so, you know, human beings aren't, you know, I think two people, I think too many people don't realize that just thoughts are things and you don't come out of the womb. You're a piece of clay and who you hang around with. So I wonder, okay, so you mentioned a couple things here. You mentioned faith, which is a part of your backstory. And I also heard you slide in systems thinking. Yes. And so, you know, I'd love you to maybe unpack one of those. If You know, I know maybe system thinking is something more recent, but again, I think, and you also mentioned habits. And I think there's a lot yes. of power on that. Do you mind just kind of sharing us a little bit more context of what you mean? So by so if, if my life is a golf course, this is the back nine theories that I came up. I didn't have all this on the front nine, right? This is this all comes from reading. You know, I read so much more now than I did in my earlier life because I read because I want to, not because I have to. And I'm always trying to get better. And so, you know, when I took over as the dean of admission and financial aid at Macaulay School, I was a teacher. And they moved me to the top position over. And I was I had 14 people who reported to me, including two who were angry at me because they wanted the job and they were directors. So they were literally next in line. But they said, why would you pick this guy who hasn't been uh, uh, in admissions at all over someone who has been in admission for 20 years? And they said, because you build teams. And they said when I interviewed them that they wanted to build they wanted to have a culture. They wanted to have a winning culture and a mindset. And they wanted to be a team. And they have a lot of talent, but they're not a team. And they said, you can do that better than anybody we have on this campus. And because we've seen you do it with teams for years and so forth. And I'm like, cool. All right, I'm down with that. But what happened is I, I, I look at it this way. People are like clay, right? There's your genetics, your DNA, what you're born to be able to do. You're wired a certain way. Like I was wired to, to make up my bed. My brother was kind of more on the funky junky side. Then you have the nurture side. So you got nature clay nurture you have the sculptor that's kind of working on this back and forth but then the the kiln is culture and the culture is the fire that heats that daggum thing up that's all around that seals it and 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 that's the thing that's the strongest of all right because you can do all the other stuff right but if that temperature's not right or you're in there too long or whatever you can blow the whole pot up and for me i always focused on the culture side 
Because if you can do that and have people buy in, particularly opinion leaders, creating systems, because I didn't want anything to be totally dependent on me. Yeah, I'm a head coach, but I can't get on the field and play for them. So I got to create systems for them to help. What are you doing every day to improve yourself? You know, I show up at practice and I won't say a thing for 20 minutes sometimes. You're like, what's coach doing? I'm watching to see if you're trying to get better. Are you waiting on me to give you the direction? And all I had to do is say it one time because some, some people were, but some people weren't. And I said, what's the difference between these two groups? These people over here starting, these people over here complaining, right? So we got right. something right now. So once I pointed out to them, I used to do it in my math class. I used to do it at work. So I walk around, I spend my time saying, hello, how you doing and how's your day? Because I want to make sure they understand that I care about them and that, I'm, that, that, that they can trust me. But when I look at things, um, when I think about systems, what, the, what processes will prevent you from, from falling back into your bad um, um, uh, biases? Everybody has biases, right? So what's going on? You know, you got instincts that, that are great, but sometimes logical thinking needs to override those doggone instincts because instincts may tell you to run where your logic may say, well, let me see what it is before I run. Before, yeah, your instincts yeah. going to kick in first, right? So yeah. what is it that protects us, that insulates us from having solutionitis as a leader? You know, I've done this so many times. This is the answer. I know what the problem is. Instead of getting any data to inform your decision or maybe even involving other people to get multiple perspectives. So for me, when I think about, um, you know, the coaching nature and my, the, 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 the transformational leadership style, that's sort of my, my style, if there would be one, um, is to empower people, is to inform people, is to trust people and engage people. But I was doing that as a teacher. So it wasn't even about me trying to do, lead an organization i was like this class is a mini organization and and they're going to play their best just like on the field if they feel like they own what they're doing and they have a way to improve themselves without me and and hold each other accountable without me so 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 that's something that um i invested in and that i read about all the time and i also realized that everybody's not born with the motivation and the volition that they need so what do you do then you create habits and you create uh short term um, goals to say, let's get to this point. Let's, let's make it easy. Let's make it obvious. You know, let's make it attractive. Like, you know, atomic habits, the book I, I just read recently, it was like, look, yeah. if you want to run, put your running shoes by your bed, not in your closet. Matter of fact, buy a nice pair of running shoes. Now you don't want to wear them. And then you say, I'm not running for two hours. I'm gonna run for 10 minutes first. So, so I get up to speed. So how do you use the knowledge that's out there? to help improve your life and the lives around you. But how do you create a system that's independent of having some revolutionary leader who can just fire you up? Cause I can fire you up. But as soon as I walk away, you might cool down again. Well, I can't have that. Kids play for four quarters, man. The halftime speech is at halftime. What you going to do in the middle? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah. And to your point, um, you know, with all of that, and, and I am also, I was thinking as you were talking, um, what you, you building teams, I, I'm curious if that also started when you were out in the fields, uh, as well too, and, and kind of just developed a little bit more and more and more. And as the teachers kind of circled around you and helped you more, you started to see more, um, that's very interesting, uh, to me, but to your point, you know, th these building habits and, and working out these systems and, okay, let's do a little bit, let's work towards this goal to get here. We, we, again, we, we are like, if our, if our mind was a road, we're, we're shining the light on that dirt road that now needs to start getting pavement put on it. So we can start using that uh, path to the highway, as opposed to the one that we were conditioned to have. 
Uh, and and the, the thing that I was also thinking about was, uh, as you stated earlier, uh, you can be, you can have that visualization where, you know, someone's leading you down that, uh, a good vision, right? A good path is a positive path, or you're getting told you're going to be just like your father. And I, I wonder in the neutral phases where they're just not saying anything, if, you know, in the environment, you start to look at things in which you don't want to be. And, and sometimes we focus so much on what we don't want to be, we end up chasing it unconsciously, if you will, right? Kind of like a hands on the clock. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? One's just one behind the other, just kind of chasing each other. Um, but I, I, I do wonder, though, if, if a lot of the work that you started in the fields uh, translated into your, your team thinking and, and how you operate uh, as an adult now, do you, do you think that that's true? Or was there anything that you can remember? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we used to have to well, cuddle up together. I, I, and, I can tell you this. So, yeah. you know, now that you think about it, you know, it's funny because when you, you know, even in education, I, I don't think kids have enough time to reflect. Yeah. You know, now granted, you know, metacognition doesn't begin until they get a certain age, was it 10 years old, somewhere around there, but so they can't yeah. think about thinking yet, right? But at the same time, it'd be nice to be able to pause and think about your life and think about why you do what you do um, and, and maybe what you need to do differently. But I can say this, um, I know Devin, you, one of the things that you talked about was um, you mentioned faith. So faith in that field, right? When I think about the team um, aspect of things, our family was not going to make it if we weren't a team. Mm. You know, when I got older, um, we worked so we can help pay for our school clothes and help uh, pay taxes. Yeah, that's what we did. And so we didn't see a paycheck. So you talking about the ultimate team, you know, now she she gave us some money. But my brother, he was complaining the other day. He's like, man, we worked all these hours. Now you can't tell me that we needed all this money for blah, 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 because it was all of us out here in the field. But but I looked at it and I that is absolutely it. It was Team Kemp up in here. And, and you know, when there wasn't any fathers, there was an uncle, because if we did something that wasn't right, we were about to get that phone call from our oh. uncle who wasn't afraid to drive, because we weren't flying, we had no money to fly, drive down 95 from Florida and be in New York the next day ready to deal with you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it, it, it was always Team Kemp. And again, you know, I found out who my father was. You know, my mom told me she, you know, and then everybody's like, that ain't really your daddy. Well, I actually did 23 and me recently and found out it's official. This joke is my dad. That was this year. Right. He's got like 20 something kids. So having him in my life, I don't know if it had been positive or negative, but point being the fate, I want to circle back. Here's the thing I think was probably the most powerful piece, the faith piece. Yeah. And the reason why I say it is I'm not bought in. Like I'm not, I'm not conservative Christian in any way. I am Christian. I'm Baptist by nature, but I'm not when there's something that I can't explain or I know I can't do, I go, God, you got this one and you always got it, but I got to go there with you on this one, especially, especially because of like several things. One, they always say, God won't put anything in your life. That's not going to make you better that you can't use. So when I said something that hit me hard, that took me down, that almost broke me down, even at some of my highest points in life, I was on my knees, literally going, man, if I can start over, I'll be just fine. And somehow God made a way. Now, somebody says, well, I don't know about faith part, but I'm going to roll with it for a minute because there ain't no other way to explain it. There's no other way. If I could tell you the inflection points of my life and I put those together in a string, you say, how can this guy make this hard right right here, this left over here, this person show up in their life? Even when I left the National Center for the Development of Boys, I was at Macaulay School, 27 years. 
And all of a sudden, I'm, we, we created the National Center for the Development of Boys website, strategic plan. I'm doing, but we didn't have much infrastructure for fundraising. So I'm out here speaking. I'm in 25 states, different countries. We got a foot, digital footprint in 103 countries. We got all this stuff going on. And I remember somebody calling me, says, I like this. How many people you have working for you? I said, three. And they were like, what? It seems like 100 people. But that's how we roll when we grew up too, right? We had right. to get it all, yes. right? We don't yes. die, we multiply. Right. right? <laughs> but 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 the point is, um, the 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 faith piece right at the end, like we were kind of running out of money with the National Center because we created its own nonprofit. I brought on this big group of board members that were able to that were finally gonna be able to fundraise this, that, and the other. But right in the middle of that, right? The Ron Clark Academy reached out to me and it's like, hey man, we want you on our team. Now they don't ask people to come on their team, people ask them because there's all kinds of people who wanna work at that school. But I had known them for years because a lot of their kids, their boys matriculated to our school. And so we had a great relationship, but you can't tell me at the point where, now the National Center part would have continued because I would have probably folded back and started working at Macaulay full-time, but then running the center sort of part-time. Um, that would have all worked out. But when you have somebody who knows Oprah Winfrey, right? right. Personally. And who who educates educators has ten to fifteen thousand educators every year come to their campus to learn how to reach and teach every type of child, and this is what I do, right? It's particularly when it comes to boys. So now, all of a sudden, ten thousand educators are going to come to hear how to how to connect with these boys. So now they're going back to their classrooms, right? And now there's a national speaking but All this stuff's happening at the moment where the national center's kind of running out of money, but it, the message is not dead. Right. Because it's with me. I'm the one helped create it. And so whatever Macaulay School decides to do, whatever form, it might just be an internal organization. But the messenger, I just have a bigger horse. As a matter of fact, I got an iron horse now. Right. 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 Yeah. So and, and it, that's where faith. Faith always said you're never alone and that yeah. somebody always loves you, no matter what anybody say, God loves you. And so when you got that, kids need love and they need safety beyond anything else. And they did feel like they belong. And that crew and the cause, that team, every boy, I always say every boy needs a crew and a cause. They need, a, they need to know that somebody's counting on them and that what they do matters to someone else, right? That purpose. And they need to belong to a group. That's why they join gangs. That's why they do things that are dangerous just to be a part of something bigger than themselves. So for me, I just help either create crew and a cause or I was always a part of one. Man, look, and Devin, pass the collection plate. Deacon Devin. <laughs> hey, man, I don't mean to go there, man, but you know what? No. I'm passionate about what I do, and I'm so thankful to have this opportunity to speak with y'all because I get inspired. You know, when I'm off, when I finish this call, I'm probably going to write for a while because I just need time to reflect because you, you all, this kind of conversation not only could potentially help somebody who's in the same position, but it allows me to reflect on my life and what really matters and get real clear about what's next. Yeah, that was a perfect way to phrase that. I'm not even going to add to it. That was perfect way to phrase that. So we were doing some, uh, we were looking you up, uh, me and my uh, my kids were, I was like, man, this guy, Troy, check it out. And then we we uh, found a couple of YouTube videos that you uh, had up and you, uh, you were introducing some kids to the stage and, and we were taking a look at the school and uh, wanted to uh, bring that up just a, just a little bit. You guys, what you guys are doing is amazing over there. Uh, and 
you know, I haven't actually, I've never set foot on the college as you guys were talking about that earlier. Never, ever have I set foot on the college. Um, but I remember the first time I visited Atlanta and for me going to Atlanta and seeing so many people of my same skin color yes. and so many places, uh, you know, where, where I'm from, this little corner pocket of Illinois for every one black person, you know, it's, it's 40 to 50 um, uh, white people, right? And right. so um, going down to Atlanta was a culture shock for me because I saw successful I yes. saw people of color with money and it just changed my, my entire perspective. And so, uh, so I, when we saw that, you, you know, the school was in Atlanta, I was like, oh my gosh, girl. Um, but uh, I, I, we love the approach that you guys are taking uh, and the things that you do and you being able to like, you can totally see in, in the clips and things, you know, of course they are just sound bites, but it's just an example of what exudes out of you. That, that's uh, every day though. That's the thing yes, about it. You know, it's I'm one saying. thing, yeah. right? I mean, so, so it's interesting, the Ron Clark Academy, I mean, you know, the reason why Ron Clark started the school is, is this very thing. He was national Disney national teacher of the year. And he connected with Kim Bearden, who was national teacher of the year, a different year, I think, and it was middle school. Um, but she's like phenomenal too. And, you know, Ron goes on Oprah, well, basically Ron's techniques. He took inner city, um, North Carolina, no, he took a suburb, like rural North Carolina school and he took the worst kids and outperformed the best kids. Then he did the same thing in Harlem, basically. So he's in New York and he was actually going to put the school in New York originally, but because Kim, because Kim lived in Atlanta, that's why he put the school in Atlanta. So it was going to be in New York. That's interesting, right? Um, yeah, that is. So, so the bottom line is what he realized when he was turning it out as a teacher, he always had other teachers in the building that were kind of hating on him going, why are you doing all this? Why are you being extra? Now you're putting pressure on me. Now my kids are you know, upset because I'm not doing stuff like you're doing, right? And he said, well, forget this. I'm going to create a school to institutionalize it where every kid in the whole school feels like they belong from day one. They're not afraid to make mistakes. They're celebrated. Diversity celebrated. And excellence is celebrated on every level. It's the Disney level of school. But yeah. what I'm going to do, though, because there's only 150 kids there, grades four through eight, is I'm going to open the doors so that other educators can come to this school and see it. Because it's one thing to go to a conference, but it's another thing to be immersed in the culture. When you visit, when you visit, you feel something. We even have a slide. We have two slides. And he has a slide in the middle of the school. And he said, you know what the slide is for? This slide is because why take the stairs when you can come down the slide? Do it differently. Don't live your life in a straight line all the time just because everybody does that. If you are creative, be creative. So come on down the slide. So anytime, instead of coming down the stairs, they could say clear to make sure nobody's at the bottom of the slide. Boom, they can come down the slide instead of the stairs, right? Yeah. But- when teachers visit, they get what they call slide certified. So at the end of the day, the teachers go to the top of the slide and they come down. Now you got to think about it. It's one of those twirly slides. So as an adult, you're like, I'm not coming down the slide. Well, you're taking yourself too seriously unless you have some injury. But one of the things that I learned when the teachers go down that slide, they go, I got to tell you, it feels like I got transformed on the way down. Because after seeing all these classes and, and getting all these workshops and feeling the vibe and hearing the music, and, and feeling like I'm getting my soul renewed. I want to teach longer. Now I come down that slide and the old me, I left at the top of the slide. The new me's coming out of the bottom. And I'm like, yo, that's deep. Yeah, it's deep. That's deep. That's <laughs> hashtag deep, bro. Needs <laughs> Everybody needs that. Everybody needs that. Yeah, I love that. Well, TK, this has been fantastic, man. Thank you for uh, spending uh, 
the fastest 52 minutes in the history of this podcast. <laughs> I'm saying. Hey, man, listen, look, you know, I'm, you know, y'all got me fired up. I might have to go run or something right now because, you know, this is, I just wish everybody felt this way. You know, there are some amazing teachers out there and I follow a lot of them on Instagram and I'm watching things. There's some really good work being done. And I'm just so glad that you have things like podcasts and you have social media so you can connect dots that would have never been connected before, right? Because yeah. somebody had to decide whether it was important back in the day to share it. Now you can share it and then let the user decide whether it's important versus yeah. some system. So I love the fact that it's not linear in terms of getting information from one place to the other. And things like this, this is the kind of stuff I listen to. You know, I'm out here, Michael Worker, who would have ever thought that this boy who grew up in the fields, who graded potatoes, you know, who, who who's free lunch and food stamps would ever have an opportunity to, to create change on a national level. So I appreciate what y'all doing um, because this right here challenged me to even ele elevate my game even more. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. TK, thanks again. If you don't, if you're open to it, I think we'd love to bring you back, man. There's still a lot to yeah. unpack here. Absolutely. And you know what? Anything y'all need, man, if you ever want to do a panel or anything like that moving forward, get some people out there to chop it up. You know, I'm down, man. I'm down. I appreciate what y'all doing. Look, I, I just watch a lot of stuff on social media. I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm learning every day, folks. I'm excited to learn. I'm inspired to learn. That's what we want our kids to be, intellectually curious. What can I know? Well, how can I be better today than I was yesterday? Y'all made me better today. I ain't going to lie to you. I took some notes, even though I was the one talking. <laughs> Listen, I took notes, too, for sure. Well, let's let's get this done, gentlemen. I, I'm going to, uh, you know, whatever y'all do, just let me know when this is airing or whatever. I'll put it on my channels. And, you know, like I said, um, I'm fortunate to teach with a lot of brothers, too. Um, ancestors, you know, people black and brown, white. I mean, everybody at our school is is next level. They've, they've assembled the dream team of educators to make sure that when educators come, they're seeing excellence in all forms. So I appreciate y'all, man. Devin, obviously, man, you, you, you know, when I tell people your story, man, I don't even know the whole thing, but I know the part that where I came in and to see what you're doing now. Um, and, and Corey, you know, for somebody you said you didn't step on a college campus, but it did, you know, everybody knows now, man, learning is not contained in a building. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Right. It's every day. It's just got to get your head on the swivel and connect the dots and connect resources. But I'm on y'all team, man. Y'all let me know. All right. We'll, we'll leave it at that. TK, enjoy the rest of the day, brother. We'll okay, take care now. Yeah.